right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 283. With that number, we give a shout out to the Olympics, which have now been officially postponed till 2021. In the six previous Olympic women's soccer tournaments, a total of 353 goals have been scored. And goal number 283, the number of this episode, was a highly significant one. It was the latest goal ever scored in an Olympic soccer match. So, of course, it was a game winner. The goal I'm talking about is Alex Morgan's 123rd minute header in extra time against Canada in the 2012 semifinal. Assisted by Heather O'Reilly, the last gasp goal gave the USA a 4-3 victory in extra time and a berth in the gold medal match for the fifth straight Olympic tournament. If you haven't seen this goal, you need to see it. Just Google Alex Morgan 2012 Olympics. All right, so two chats in this episode. First, I spoke with Neil Morris, who covers North Carolina soccer for WRALsportsfan.net. And he's also a lawyer, so he was a perfect person to talk to about the current state of the U.S. women's national team lawsuit. And, of course, the soccer side of things, we talked about his sit-down with new Courage player Haley Mace. Then I had a short chat with Jacob Cristobal of soundertheart.com to get caught up on all things rain, the club's name slash logo change, the new head coach, and some of the many roster changes. In between the two chats is, of course, the relatively new recurring segment that I call Gensplaining. This week, I thought it would be appropriate to share an overview of the first women's Olympic soccer tournament. Of course, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone with two X's and at Keeper Notes. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper. It seems like forever since I've recorded, but I'm finally recording today with my friend Neil Morris from North Carolina and WRALsportsfan.com. Did I get it right, Neil? Uh, you did, and it awesome. feels like, and it feels like forever since I've talked in WSL with another human being. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, so let's start. Let's talk NWSL, and then we'll get on to some other topics. But yeah, it's kind of weird with everything paused. But you, you actually, before everything shut down, you got to have, uh, you know, an old school sit down, um, sit down interview with a player. I did that that, that quaint uh, sort of bygone era of going to training <laughs> and talking to a player for actually an extended period of time. Yeah, the uh, the last day of the one week of training that NWSL had, I, I got a, a, about a half hour sitting down with Haley Mace, um, which was interesting because um, I think it's uh, unless I missed something somewhere, I think it's the first time that she has spoken at length publicly about her saga of last year of, of, of declining to sign with Sky Blue after being drafted by them and then opting instead of going to Europe and then eventually still not signing with Sky Blue and then going ultimately being traded to, to North Carolina Courage. And it was her first week of Courage camp and, and I had a chance to see, go watch her a couple of days and then obviously sit down and, and speak to her at some length. Uh, and, and of course, talk to Paul Riley, which is always an interview at length. And so, <laughs> um, and, and so, it was, and so it was good. I mean, I got to do a little bit of a profile of, of kind of where she's been and where she's gone, and where she may be going. And she's she's an interesting, 
she's an interesting case. You know, you know, the the article just posted today on on the Equalizer website. I invite everyone to to go check it out. Uh, you know, Mace was Mace was one of those high risers. I mean, everybody was talking about her about a year, year and a half ago. I mean, she was she was right. a late she was a late bloomer to start with. She wasn't someone who played, you know, ECNL or or ODP going back to to you know middle school. I mean, she was someone who kind of played a bunch of different sports till her senior year in high school when folks kind of said, "Hey, soccer is kind of where you're at, where you need to be." I mean, she was almost more of a volleyball star. Uh, and then she she finally got on an ECL ECNL team her senior year in high school. Uh, her and her family kind of did some direct marketing uh, techniques themselves. Landed a scholarship offer at UCLA of all places, and then impressive after after playing defense a couple of years, she gets moved to forward her junior year and just explodes. And then it's kind of been this meteoric rise ever since. Including, you know, three caps with the senior national team in her, her uh, senior year of college. Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, she got her first cap in, in Houston in that game against Mexico where Carly had her 100th goal. And landed a spot on the 20-player the CONCACAF uh, World Cup qualifier team. Uh, it started, right. started against Panama. And then all of a sudden... Uh, Sky Blue drafts her, and she doesn't sign, and then she kind of goes into to purgatory, and 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 that's kind of where it's at. And then she kind of reemerged uh, when the, the, when Sky Blue traded her, uh, you know, a week or so before this year's draft to, to the, the Courage. So, it, it, you know, it's interesting that she's well, she was poised to reemerge. I mean, all of that's on pause now, obviously, uh, but right. But but it's interesting of you know why she didn't go to Sky Blue uh, you know the the ever the, the unending question of where what position she should be playing and Paul Riley had some interesting thoughts on that uh, some pretty frank thoughts on that to be quite honest about it and so it's there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack in the article and I think that folks should check it out it's it's pretty interesting if you know her story. Well, and of course, it's it's I think fitting that she would end up at North Carolina with Paul Riley, just because you know when you describe someone who plays defense and then breaks out as forward like that, that to me, I can totally see that <laughs> matching well, and, with, with Paul. Well, and of course, the story is not written, and of course, and you know what Paul says today may not ultimately be what, what ends up coming to pass. But you know, I think she was pretty well slated to. And I don't think anyone would argue this, that she was probably going to uh, – would have been the starting right back for the team with Merritt Mathias out. Now, right. But what's interesting is – and there, Paul makes no bones about this, and I don't think that Haley does either in the article – is that – you know, there's a there's a conversation between them and maybe even the national team about what's her best chance to play for the national team versus what's her best position. And Paul, at some length, says, "Look, I had a conversation with Haley. Uh, it says, you know, what do you think your best position is?" And her response was, "Well, I think my best chance to make the national team is at center back." He says, "Yeah, but your best position is not center back." And she goes, "Yeah, I know." And he says, "Well, then, then what's your best?" He says, "I." Want want you to try to make the national team at your best position. 
And then I asked Paul, I said, well, then what's her best position? And what's what's interesting is, is you know, I watched Mace play a couple of training, and I very, str- I mean, much more of a stronger player than I than I had, you know, sort of, sort of seen uh, on television. Upper body strength, lower body strength, is amazing. Uh, a very good 1v1 defender. But Paul says she she's a sniper. <laughs> she scores goals for fun in practice. Um, I mean, those are his quotes. He's, and he, he equates her not in style of play, but in role to like Crystal Dunn and Davinia. Not that her style is like theirs, not, not even close. But he believes that she's the kind of player who would be best in the attack not having defensive responsibility, which I was floored by that. I was like, really? Because we all sort of were debating whether she'd be playing right back or center back. And that may ultimately be where she, that ultimately may be where she lands at some point with either club or country. But Paul's assessment, and, you know, he gets wild by somebody who can, who can strike the ball uh, is that I think her best position is at the, at the 10 or the nine. Uh, she, he thinks she's a she's a, uh, an, an attacking player with a with a big boot. And by the way, the couple of days I saw her in training, she she had a heck of a strike. I mean, it was it, there was a couple of shots she took that just rattled the crossbar, and everybody just kind of looked at each other. And said, did you see that? I was like, yeah, I did. Uh, so I I understand where he's coming from, and the fact that he would have said that really surprised me. So. You know, it, it would be if if everything was on schedule, it would be very interesting to see how it would play out. I mean, I think she, Paul admits she would play right back because they don't have a right back right now. But if and when Merritt Mathias comes back, it's going to be very interesting to see where he puts her on the field. Well, I also think it's interesting to see for us to see eventually, um, you know, how a player does in their first year in the league, but it's their second year playing pro. Right. So, you know, so she didn't sign with Sky Blue, uh, you know, went off and and played elsewhere. um, So had a different kind of rookie experience. Right. And, you know, to to add maybe that maturity experience along with the incredible skills you're describing like you know that could could really add to a player's breakout in NWSL it could and and she admits that you know while while playing in in Europe was not at the level of NWSL, it was a cut above of, of college. So she's kind of viewing it in retrospect as a stepping stone. You know, the, the, I asked Paul, you know, given what happened last year with Sky Blue, whether, you know, he had to do any kind of sales job on, on Haley Mace uh, to get her to commit to, to signing with, with North Carolina. And as, as is often the case, his, his response was fascinating. He was like, yeah, I had to do a heck of a sales job. And I said, but not in the way you might think. You know, what I, you know her concern, and he says this all in, on the record, he says her concern is that she was worried she wouldn't get playing time. Right, because you're, you're coming into a pretty deep squad. Right. And I told her, this is Paul talking, that that's, he says, you're right. You're not going to be guaranteed playing time, and guess what? That's the best thing for you right now. You need to be in an environment where you're going to get better and you're going to be challenged every day. And he says, "Yeah, you've been for too long. You've been the best player on your team. 
that doesn't need yeah. to happen anymore. You need to not be the best player on your team. And I think that got through to her. And and I think that's when he says that's when it kind of turned the corner and she was like, yeah, I'm good to go here. Yeah. Especially if she's going to be competing uh, to be on the national team. Yeah. You can't just go, oh, yeah, I got my place. Like, nope, you got to be fighting for that, you know, every day. <laughs> But so let's 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 talk beyond uh, North Carolina. Of course, you know everything's on pause for NWSL and MLS and virtually every sport league. Um, yeah, there's not a lot we can really guess about what happens next because we've got no precedent for this, and you know it's way too early for the league to make plans of like, oh, we'll start by x date you know um and of course we just got the news earlier this week that the olympics are officially postponed to 2021 so that that's another kind of season altering thing that you know whenever we do get to get back to playing well hey you know your national teamers aren't going to be gone you know for for eight to ten weeks right so um you know it's just it's such a strange time and you know i i I feel bad for lisa baird the new nwsl commissioner who she doesn't even have the opportunity right now to to travel around and meet all the people at the clubs right like that was when we had the conference call with her Uh you know during she be- the she believes stretch she was just like yeah that's what i'm gonna do is you know get out there and meet everybody and do a lot of travel and i was like boom you know that's you know that's not yeah. happening um and and then of course we have the announcement the announcement this week also that u.s soccer has finally named a ceo to replace dan flynn who'd been ceo almost forever, it felt like. And Dan left, what, August, September of last year? I mean, that position's been open a while. It has, yeah. You know, and it and may seem been, like... And, it's been, and it feels like even longer because he kind of forecasted he was going to be leaving right, even longer right. than that. Yeah, and it, it may seem like that's an easy position to fill. No, that's not an easy position to fill. Um, one, you know, we all know all the different issues facing U.S. soccer beyond just the lawsuit by the women's national teams. There's other legal disputes in place. Um, you know, you've got the the men not qualifying for the last World Cup. You've got a lot of different stakeholders. And, of course, you know, what, what we've heard the last few months is that, uh, you know, they weren't necessarily – offering the biggest salary. Um, but when you're trying to get someone to come in and, you know, really fix things. Um, but I was, uh, I was fine with, uh, who they announced Will Wilson, who's got a background in, in a lot of aspects of not only soccer, but pro sports and is bilingual. The second language of course, being, being Spanish. Um, but what were your thoughts when you heard the announcement of the new CEO? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think from a resume point of view with, you know, a lot of people can point on his experience with, with some and, and, and MLS as being sort of good and bad. Um, you know, he's worked for Wasserman for several years, which puts him in the middle of the sport. You know, my, you know, it's a little bit of a blank slate. I think what's, what I find a little interesting 
Um, and I, again, I don't, I don't pretend that there's any kind of sea change going on at U.S. Soccer at all. Uh, you know that these things, you know, aren't. You know, that kind of institution isn't sort of made for upheaval. It's you know, you're just kind of trying to push things along as best you can. Right. I think what, the slow-moving kind of animal. <laughs> that's right. And if you want to make changes, it's incremental usually. But what I what I did find interesting, and this is. This has been going on for a few months now. Um, you know, as I, t- I tweeted out the other day, and I think everybody kind of eventually figured this out. There, there's, there's three. There are three members of the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors right now who have a connection with North Carolina FC Youth. Um, the, the president, the CEO, and one of the board members. Um, they're all on. They're all kind of been with North Carolina FC, and they all live in North Carolina. Uh, Cindy Cohn is the girls' director, the Durham Chapel Hill girls' director for NCFC Youth, and still is, as far as I know. Um, uh, Steve Malik, the owner of the North Carolina Courage, uh, is mm-hmm. back is back on the board of directors as of a couple of months ago. There was no announcement about that, but he took the place of Alex Papadakis uh, as the second pro-council representative, and that happened not very long ago. Um, and then now third is Will Wilson, who both Malik and Wilson were on the or are and were on the board of directors for NCFC Youth uh, here in North Carolina. So while a whole lot of people probably knew who Will Wilson was, including Don Garber, so did Steve Malik. Um, and I, you know, and I just looking at the chronology of this, <laughs> I, I don't see it. As, I don't see it as coincidence that that Cindy, who you know, back when she was approached to become vice president as an on an interim basis, I think Steve Malik was on the board then. You know, he was gone for a year. Um, and, and I can't imagine there was not any kind of conversations or recruitment by him to get her to do that job. And now, all of a sudden, you know, after you know the the probably the aborted efforts to hire Jay Berhalter, and then just a, an absolute sort of seeming paralysis to get anything done within right. a month within a month or so of Malik coming on the board, Cohn becoming president, and now someone who was in the same apparatus as the CEO. I think that's the connection I'm looking at. Um, now, whether that's good or bad or neither is, 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 is who knows. But I just I find it interesting that these movements are taking place uh, shortly after we've had those changes involving people who are all sort of in the same the same ethos, and I think I think it'd be it's interesting to see what happens going forward uh, with with those folks uh, sort of in charge. And I, you know, I, I, that's not anything definitive, but I think everyone is kind of looking at you know the sum and the the MLS you know Illuminati thing, um, and in the you know <laughs> the, the Wasserman. You know, conglomerate, and I, and it may be more elemental than that. It may be just a fact of here's a bunch of folks who knew each other in North Carolina and worked together, uh, and then you know, finally someone was brought back on the board who maybe sort of jostled things around and kind of pushed things, to, some things to get done that needed to get done. 
you know, st- starting starting yeah. by the way with with whatever efforts were made behind the scenes that led to Carlos Cordero resigning, and then you know now a CEO being hired in fairly short order after after months of inactivity. Right. It's it's been. Uh- a very active march for U.S. soccer <laughs> Yeah. when, you know, for the first half of March, followed by, okay, now we have kind of, you know, we can't do men's Olympic qualifying, the Olympics are postponed, the April friendlies are canceled, who knows what's, you know, the next time people are going to play, who knows about U17, U20 Women's World Cup, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it's yeah, kind of good lawsuit, to get the lawsuits are the only thing still going with. on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so we have a little bit of news, or at least you, you as a lawyer, can explain. You know where we are right now. Uh, you know, with the lawsuits, the trial date is still set for May fifth um, in LA. But what's what's the latest on the lawsuit? Um, well, I don't see how they're going to have a trial by May 5th. Of course, I'm not plugged into the California court system, so I would, I would find that hard hard to believe that that would take place. Well, what's happened this week is due in no small part or maybe in total part because of the, the COVID-19 closures and the, the fact that they're not having open court sessions in California. The judge in the U.S. Uh, USSF, U.S. Women's National Team lawsuit, um, canceled uh, oral arguments or, or oral hearing on the motion, the much written about motions for summary judgment uh, that both sides recently uh, filed. What was interesting about it is that you know normally you would think, okay, well he's going to postpone the, the hearings until they can they can have them. No, he just said. As as sometimes happens with with motions hearings or appellate matters, uh, he just this this judge said, "Nah, we're, we're going to do this without oral hearings. I've got the pleadings. I'll make my judgment on the pleadings." So uh, that that part of the court case is not going to be held up. There's going to be a decision at some point in the not so distant future on those motions for summary judgment. Uh, and either one side's going to win or neither side's going to, and then we keep going from there. I mean, you know, who knows what, what the decision will be. You know, reading correspondence with Stephen Bank, uh, Professor Stephen Bank out of California, apparently this, this judge is an, is an older judge who's one of the, as he says, one of the original rocket docket judges, which I f- fully know what that means. I mean, there, there's judges who just want to move their dockets along, and they don't don't put up with a whole lot of delays, and this seems like one of those judges apparently who's just like, "Look, I'm I'm not going to hold everything up. I'm going to move this along." And we had sort of gotten hints of that by the fact that you know he the judge had set sort of a short window to beginning to begin trial uh, in this case, which a lot of people thought was his pressure to try to make the side settle, which it could have been. But if anybody's like me, who I, I, I practiced for years in front of a resident judge who was one of the rocket docket or a rocket docket judge, so to speak, and, and they're fine if you settle. And if not, then put 12 in the box. I mean, that's their philosophy is like, I'm not going to mess around about this. Let's go. And so, <laughs> so, 
you know, who, you know, his efforts may be trying to force these sides to settle, but I don't see very much happening on that front. Um, I think we're going to get a decision on the summary judgment, and if one side wins, then that's it. And if once, if neither side does, then maybe they start talking settlement again. But I, we're going to get a decision. You know, COVID nineteen be damned uh, on those motions. They're just not going to be able to make oral arguments, which is which, which is fine to be honest about. It. It's no big deal. Well, um, explain. As simply as as you can, just a little overview of what the summary judgments were. I mean, I know for you know those of us that you know aren't involved in law, it, it seemed like all of a sudden we had a slew of statements coming out. But yeah. you know, not a lot of people explain like why those were coming out then and what the, what they mean in in terms of the process of the case. Right. So as as simply as I can, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> a, a motion for summary judgment is when one side or or both sometimes, which it was both in this case, files a motion in with the court in advance of trial that says we've done discovery, we've had interrogatories, we've had uh, depositions, we've had whatever discovery we we're going to have, and based solely on that discovery, there is. As, and the, the the wording, the legal wording is that there's not a genuine issue of material fact. <laughs> In other words, there's no material there's no material facts. In other words, facts that are important to the deciding of the case, mm-hmm. where there is a real issue as to what the fact or what the truth is, um, and that there are legal issue legal. Uh, uh, determinations that can decide this case short of having to have a full-blown trial. Like, just based on everything we've got in front of us, this is the obvious outcome. And we don't need a trial to get to it. Um, that There's not a factual determination that the, that a jury or a, or a trier of fact has to make. It's, it's on so the page. Both sides, so both sides put one of those out saying, hey – you could just judge on this right now. Is that what? That's right. Kind of what That's right. Saying? Which, which the judge, you know, usually there those motions are unsuccessful. Um, <laughs> you know, I I think even even the U.S. Women's National Team's attorney recognizes that it's uncommon for the plaintiff in a in a wage act issue uh, to win at summary judgment because there is so much. Uh, dispute and, and difference of, of perception and, and, and opinion as to why certain things happened the way they did um, in those kinds of cases, or most cases for that matter. Uh, so uh, I think they filed their motion. I would be, I, you know, I would be surprised if the women's national team was successful. Uh, I, w- I would be a little surprised if you, if, if, if the U.S. soccer was successful as well. But I, the only way that I could see this issue, this this being decided at summary judgment, and again, I may be very wrong. The only, <laughs> the, the only basis and the only issue, and I've said this for months, you know, every now and then I'll pop up on Twitter and reiterate this, that, you know, U.S. soccer, you know, the, the, the arguments that got them in so much trouble and frankly got the president out of office <laughs> uh, had to do with sort of these these 
these arguments about the elements of a, of a wage act violation where you have to show that the difference in compensation occurred uh, had to have taken place in an industry where the work is the same. Um, and, and that's an element of, of, of the statute. And so the women's national team says it's the same work and U.S. soccer for, for obvious reasons has to be, make some argument that it's not the same. But, you know, the way you do it and the way you go about it is, is, is what gets you, what got them in trouble. To me, that's a secondary issue and a secondary argument. The issue that I could potentially see summary judgment being granted, even though it's not a great chance, is sort of the basic threshold issue that U.S. soccer has been arguing the whole time, which is the wages and the benefits that were being paid were by virtue of a collectively bargained process between a union and 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 and, the, and their employer. And that to retroactively go back and say that there was inherent uh, uh, inequality in a collectively bargained structure is 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 is, is pretty different. Uh, courts are very reluctant to go in there in, in labor law to go in and start messing around with collectively bargained uh, agreements because that's what they want. <laughs> they want these <laughs> these entities to get together and agree to something and then go forward so they don't have to fight everything out in court all the time. And that's the whole purpose of it. And so to go back and say, okay, there was inherent inequality that trumps the fact that this was a collectively bargained agreement, um, you know, I could see a court saying, nah, this was collectively bargained. You haven't <laughs> challenged, <laughs> you haven't charged, you haven't charged, you know, you have not challenged uh, that there was the collective bargaining process itself saying that there was fraud or inherent inequality, even though I think they would claim that. Uh, so what are we doing here? I mean, so that. That is that I've long said that if there was going to be an issue decided at summary judgment, it would be there. What I think is going to happen is that nobody's going to win at summary judgment. This thing just continues on. But I'll be very interested if any if there is a if there is a determination at this level, you know, and it's not that, I would be very surprised. Well, and and what's. I think hard for us fans to understand because, you know, these these tidbits come out and you're like, oh, my God, how could they say that? And some, you know, some really basic things you're like, I can't believe they were allowed to do that or that this pay is disparate or something like that. But but a lot of those feelings aren't necessarily relevant to the actual case, like, you know, like you're explaining um, that, you know, a judge could go, well, you guys you know, hammered out this agreement and both signed it. So what's, what's the big deal? Right. Um, so That's right. part of me feels that part of me feels that this lawsuit in a way is a way to maybe not recapture what they lost in the past or what they feel they lost in the past, but um, to set a standard going forward. And you may be right about that. And, you know, and the, the CBA expires, is it this year, next year, pretty soon. Um, and so, uh, you know, who you can end of imagine. this year, probably. Yeah. So you can imagine what the, the what the what the negotiation process is going to be around that. I mean, that could be that could make the trial <laughs> look like a like a cakewalk. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be 
it's going to be bad, and at least I think it's going to be. And so it, this could be a lot of ways of setting the table. Um, you know, the other thing that's been, you know, and we could spend probably another hour talking about this, but, you know, the other thing that I, as an attorney that I, that, you know, I, I get a little, I, I chuckle a little bit at some of the, the way that these things come out. You know, there was a lot of, <laughs> During the, uh, you know, and during, during the press conference or the teleconference yesterday with Will Wilson and, and Cindy Cohn, there was there was a few questions that basically said, "Okay, you've disavowed all these terrible uh, statements that were made in these prior pleadings." Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm paraphrasing right now. I understand, but but, but mm-hmm. you're you're but you're still fighting the lawsuit. So what does that say about trying to get along with the other side? And I'm and I'm thinking, well, what the heck are they supposed to do? I mean. You know, you've got one side saying you owe us sixty to seventy million dollars. What, what do you? What, do you <laughs> what are they supposed to do? Just say, okay, we give up. I mean, that would be half yeah. of the asset. That's half the assets that U.S. Soccer has in their in their coffers. Now, I'm not saying that that U.S. Soccer is right at all. Um, and I and I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a settlement. What I'm saying is that people who are going out on social media and saying, well, now you just need to settle the case. Well, look, I'm a, you know I've practiced law for twenty years and I've mediated for the last six. It takes two to tango, you know. It, yeah. It, you can't just tell one side to settle. I mean, you could tell them to capitulate, um, <laughs> but every settlement there has to be a benefit to both sides in order to yeah. motivate them to do it. Otherwise, yeah. You, otherwise, you have nothing to lose by going to trial. I mean, that's just that's elemental fact. And so we don't know what the negotiation process has been. We don't know what the offers of the demands have been. I have no idea. I do know this. I know U.S. Soccer's attorney, Jeffrey Kessler, is both very capable and very aggressive. Uh, he's, as, as, I t- as I said on Twitter, he's a wartime consigliere. He's not someone you bring in to settle, uh, not usually. <laughs> um, so – you know, who knows what the discussions have been? Who knows, you know, which side believes they've got the upper hand as far as settlement leverage is concerned, which is, you know, can also be a misperception. Right. Uh, but my point is, who, you know, both sides can be difficult in the settlement process, um, and just telling one side you need to settle is is is, is misreads the process. Yeah, and there's there's so much more to come. And of course, we've got this, you know, unprecedented pause right now um, that could end up affecting, you know, how the trial moves ahead. And, you know, just it's just a big question mark. So so we'll just leave it hanging there. This is like a to be continued. Um, but I do recommend everyone check out Neil's article on Haley Mace on EqualizerSoccer.com. Um, you know, great great to have stories like that where you know the writer gets to sit down with the player and and talk for for a long time and neil i really appreciate your insight as someone who's worked in law to kind of simplify (laughs) some of these some of these (laughs) topics not sure i did that but i did the best i could Time for a little gensplaining. Today's topic, women's soccer became an Olympic sport in 1996. So let's talk about that first tournament. 
So first one held in 1996 when the Olympics were hosted in Atlanta, and there were just eight teams participating. I know that sounds like a pretty timid debut and also a fairly late one in the history of the Olympic movement. But when you factor in that no official women's international matches were played before the 1970s, and that the U.S. women's team didn't debut until 1985, and that the first official Women's World Cup wasn't held till 1991, it makes a little bit more sense why women's soccer is still a fairly young Olympic sport. So with Atlanta hosting the 1996 Olympics, Olympic Games, uh, American soccer officials pushed to have women's soccer added to the global event. And keep in mind, each Olympic sport is governed by its own federation separate from the International Olympic Committee. So approval is needed from both the IOC and FIFA for women's soccer. Um, you know, for any sport, it would have to be the IOC and the governing body. So due to the fact that the 1996 host country, USA, had won the first Women's World Cup in 1991, and that soccer was rapidly gaining popularity in the United States, in 1993, FIFA and the IOC agreed to add women's soccer for the upcoming 1996 Olympics. For that first Olympic tournament, and for the next one in 2000, no qualifying tournaments were held. Instead, participants were determined by performance in the previous year's World Cup. And of course, the host country getting an automatic berth. So the top finishers from the 1995 Women's World Cup held in Sweden qualified for 1996. With one exception, England had reached the quarterfinals in Sweden and they could have played in the Atlanta Olympics, but only as Great Britain because the Olympic Committee for the UK is Great Britain and not England, Scotland, Wales, etc. At the time, the various federations that composed Great Britain chose not to field such a team. So Brazil, the next best finisher from 1995, got the final spot for the Atlanta Olympics. And good for Brazil, too, as they reached the semifinals of the 1996 tournament. Now, unlike men's soccer, which starting with the 1992 Olympic tournament had become a U23 event, women's Olympic soccer has remained a senior tournament, meaning there are no age restrictions on the rosters. When women's soccer was first added, you know, Think back to 1993, there were no women's professional soccer leagues in the world, though there were many semi-pro ones, and very few international tournaments, so there was little to conflict with the event. Now, it's a different story these days, and of course, I will be very interested to see if and how the Women's Olympic Soccer Tournament changes in the next few cycles, including this one, given the postponement to 2021. Last little Olympic soccer tidbit, there was very little video of the first women's Olympic soccer tournament online, and not much of the others in general due to the IOC's pretty strict copyright enforcement. But I did finally figure out a way to share the full game video I have of the 1996 final USA versus China. It's a great game and worth watching It's in, in, it's in, in its entirety. And all you have to do is go to keepernotes.com, click on the link for Woso Nerd Links, and then click on the word Olympic under the listing for my YouTube channel. You'll see it's bolded. And then enjoy.
All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper here with Jacob Cristobal from SounderAtHeart.com to talk about what else? OL Rain. And you might be going, what is OL Rain? But that's why I wanted to talk to Jacob about the club that keeps changing its name. <laughs> yeah. Changing really... name, changing address form. <laughs> Like I, I felt even though I know fans didn't, I felt okay last year when I would occasionally refer to Rain as as Seattle because it was a pretty new change, right? And they really mm-hmm. just kind of chopped Seattle off of Rain FC. But this is different. This is yeah. like you went down to the courthouse and you really changed your name to start a whole new life. So you know, mm-hmm. and of course you have. Olympic Leon coming in as majority owners. You still have the Predmore zoning part and Tony Parker um, from NBA still owning a tiny little part. I love that. Um, but mm-hmm. so what were your thoughts? I mean, I think we all thought this would, this would happen once Olympic Leon came into the picture, but, yeah, but what, when, are, what are your thoughts about it? Um, my thoughts were, it was to be expected, you know, when they had that press conference uh what almost seems like an eternity ago, given <laughs> the current situation we're all in. But, uh, but yeah, when they announced that OL Group was buying the majority share of Rain FC, we knew, we pretty much uh, suspected that a name change was going to happen. And, you know, here we are. We have, it's now called OL Rain. I think we, as uh, people who write on Sounder Heart are still, we still get to call it the rain uh, or just simply rain. Right. But, um, it's to be expected. Um, I know a lot of fans are disappointed in the logo change being that we said goodbye to the original badge with uh, the lady in the crown and how awesome it was. And yeah, yeah I loved it. I love the uh, logo as well. I was hoping, um, or at least it would be nice if it could return as or stay on as like an alternate logo for the club. But I'm not surprised that, um, it, you know, that I wouldn't be surprised at all if that wasn't an option considered. Um, so it's it is sad to see that uh, pretty cool and let's face it, badass logo go away. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I it was distinctive and very, like, up. I look at it and I and I thought Pacific Northwest Seattle, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And I wonder, too, now that, you know, I can see on the, on the logo and the website, it looks like you've got a lot of red and dark blue being used. Mm-hmm. Do you think we'll see a shift in uh, the jersey colors that they're going to use for 2020? Um, I can see it happening. I I do wonder, though, if they're going to avoid having red on even as like an accent or just anywhere where like it shows any sort of like prominence because obviously they have their neighbors down south in Portland Thorns that own red. Right. Uh, not literally own red, but, you know, they, they are the <laughs> red team. But yeah. I can see it like maybe like as like a side piping stripe. But I do yeah. wonder if they're also going to adopt something that's more closer to the theme of how Olympic Lyonnais teams, uh, their jerseys are, it's where it's predominantly white. And then you have the accents of the blue and red here and there. Um, I do like that. Um, this is just my personal opinion that I do like the shade of blue that they're now using is a little bit brighter because I think way too many sports franchises in North America have, uh, 
the dark blue navy uh, shade going on. So I do like, at least with the rebranding, they've gone with a little brighter shade of blue. Yeah, yeah. You can tell it's not navy. It's like a step yeah. lighter than navy. Mm-hmm. But so, it's, de- and- it's definitely not into Chicago sky blue, light blue. Yeah. No, it's it's not not anywhere near that. So um, it just remains to be seen. I do wonder when our team's gonna uh, announce or release, you know, the new jerseys for this upcoming season. Obviously, a lot of that is based on when they can never get their players in to do picture days. And uh, but you know, the times that we're living in right now, obviously, plans have to change. So we'll be fascinating to see when the NWSL clubs do unveil the new jerseys and how they go about revealing those. And the the players are even there. That's the last part of the equation. I know from my work in soccer retail that, you know, all of our custom Nike kits came from China, right? So Mm -hmm. um, there was a shutdown in production during February. Now, I don't think that's still, still true, but I know when Dash released the design of their new home jersey, they were hoping to do the away at the same time, but just had not been able to actually receive the jersey. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I wonder how much that temporary shutdown in China affected, you know, any team's shipment or design process of, hey, we need to, you know, we need to get need to get these in. Um, because, mm-hmm. yeah, even if you even if you can't do a photo shoot, you can still at least like, here's what it looks like. Woo. You know, because that's yeah. anything anything you can do to get fans engaged and, and obviously, you know, fans to go, oh, I'll pre-order that, you know, that that kind of thing. Well, and of course, another big change for for the rain this season is new coach with, with the departure of Lako Nanofsky to the U S national team. So they hired, um, Ben Steedy and, you know, there's a lot of drama about that when it was, when it was first announced, but I want to get your thoughts now that, you know, that, that news has been around. And, and I know you've had, uh, long talks with Bill Predmore, you know, about the process of hiring. So, you know, give, give us some background information so people understand, you know, why when you're going to hire from outside the U.S., you know, and, and why this particular coach's, you know, background was something that, uh, you know, O.L. Rain wanted? Well, when it comes to, I guess, the first uh, part of your question about hiring somebody from the outside, uh, it will be uh, fascinating to see how uh, Ferry Bentiti uh, adapts uh, to NWSL style of play. Because I remember last season when uh, Orlando Pride came into town and I asked Mark Skinner, what was it like to actually see an experience in an NWSL game up close and in person in comparison to, you know, whatever, how many, how much video he had probably watched before coming into the U.S. and also just from hearing from players and coaches, you know, the word of mouth, what, how different was it? you know, based on what he came in with. And he said it was completely different, you know, like the speed was like 10 times more than what he had prepared for in terms of hearing from colleagues and players and just watching video. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see how Fareed will adapt to that. Obviously, uh, he's probably uh, talked with Bill Predmore throughout the interviewing process about what, you know, Dan Vassell's style of play is like. He's also talked with plenty of the senior players on the team, what it's like and 
surely has watched uh, a lot of video as well, but he won't know until he coaches that first regular season game to experience and what it's like. And I have to think on the fly what sort of adjustments he, need, he needs to make with his game plan. So there's always going to be going to be some, I don't want to say skepticism is the correct word for it, but just, you know, um, curiosity as to how his coaching style is going to translate from based on his experience in France and uh, and abroad, how it translates over here into the U.S. And I think that it's always going to be a challenge um, for someone new to coaching NWSL, even if they're not coming from from outside the U.S. But if you haven't coached within NWSL, it is unique among the pro leagues, you know, for its speed of play and parity. And then Mm -hmm. it's not the same as college, right? Because you've got all kinds of roster rules and, and issues that don't come into play um, into college. You know, college, if you're, if you're a college coach, you're, you're out there scouting 15 and 16 year olds, right? You know, you have them for a limited period and you know, you, you know, they, they can't demand trades for the most part. And you know, that it's just, it's a different beast. So I feel like any first year NWSL coach kind of gets a, a pass on, okay, here's your adjustment year. You know, and I yeah. always love talking to them at the end of their first year, towards the end of the first year. I mean, like you were saying about Mark Skinner, uh, when I would talk to him in the fall for for prepping for uh, calling the games online, like just everything he had picked up and he was like, okay, so next year I'm going to do this and I want this and I'm trying to do this. And and I also remember talking to Matt Beard for, from the Breakers uh, before he was going into his second draft about how his approach was completely different based on his entire experience of that first year, just assumptions he had made of skills players had and didn't have. And yeah. And so it's like, you know, we're, we're slowly growing this kind of coaches playing pool. Right. And and it's nice to see some new names come in. So it's not the endless carousel of, well, this coach moved here and that coach moved there. And, you know, um, and just getting, even getting some new assistant coaches in, you know, uh, as well. Um, you know, of course, Rain has Sam Lady, who's been there since the, the beginning. Um, but you've also got a new name that I saw, and I want to look up more about her. Where is it? I had just had it. Um, Carrie Kevton. uh mm-hmm who had coached uh, looks like over in, in Denmark. So it's just like, yeah, new names, new philosophies, new ideas. And, and again, you're, you're broadening that pool. So as we head towards expansion, you know, I would think any of these assistant coaches would have an amazing opportunity to then jump to a head coach position. Yeah. And you've mentioned uh, him earlier, but I think a great asset for Ben Seeley is the fact that Sam Lady is still around as the longtime assistant coach for the club. And he's been here since uh, day one. And he's going to be a great um, asset for him in terms of you know, helping, carrying out whatever his approach to the game, how he thinks uh, rain players should be playing on the field. And I, I also know from uh, the chat we had with Bill Predmore a couple months ago was that Sam Lady was the one that did the drafting for Rain uh, in this uh, year's college draft. 
Well, and and I love the fact that you have somebody who's been around since day one because mm-hmm. in a new league, a small struggling league where, you know, change is the name of the game, especially when you look at uh, rosters, like the fact that not only does Rain still have three players who have been on the roster since day one, mm-hmm. you know, you also have have a coach on the staff like that. That that's huge in terms of continuity and you know being able to have a a, a sense of of history. I, I mean, to to me, that's invaluable. Mm-hmm. And it's what uh, keeps us and those uh, three senior players coming back year after year. Yeah, yeah. Because even with the 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 raises that we've seen, you know, for uh, for NWSL, it's like you still, you know, that Jess Fishlock isn't bringing home huge bucks, right? But there's got to be mm-hmm. something there that makes it makes it worth it for. Her. And let's talk about some of the other players um, on the rain. Uh, you, the the rain right now, rather have the have the honor of signing the last player uh, before the moratorium on training uh, with OL Rain signing Shirley Cruz. Uh, the, the famous Shirley Cruz, captain of Costa Rica, and she's played mm-hmm. all over. But we've never gotten gotten to see her play for U.S. clubs. So, were you surprised with that signing, or just like, of course? <laughs> um, it, both. Like, I was surprised that uh, they managed to get her, but then knowing uh, her past in playing under Ben Cidi, uh, it's and. Uh, connection with Olympic Leonid back then, it's like, of course, they would uh, tap into that uh, pipeline eventually. Um, and I think it um, it's going to be an interesting thing. And I say interesting mostly with on the plus side, because I feel like, as we know, Jess Fishlock is still on her road to recovery from her 20 ACL. You're going to need another veteran presence in that midfield, along with Ali Long and the combination of Rosie White, Morgan Andrews, and Shirley Cruz having uh, been having played under Ben Cidi before, she can help b- bridge um, whatever his game plans and his philosophy from his technical area out onto the field. So it's like having another assistant coach out on on the field for all the for all the players that are still adjusting to however he his game plans are. So along with Shirley Cruz. You know, big name. Of course, didn't we didn't get a lot of brouhaha because a lot of other crap was happening at the same time. Yeah. But a um, lot of a lot of offseason movement with the departure of Teresa Nielsen, Lydia Williams, mm-hmm. Bevianez retiring, Rumutsugi leaving, um, also acquiring new players. The big trade um, with Houston. So mm-hmm. Amber Brooks, Sofia Huerta coming your way, Megan Oyster, Shea Groom heading here to Houston, picking up Danny Weatherholt from Orlando, signing Kelsey Hedge, Julie Ashley. I know that's a long list of names, um, but I would think it's it's almost par for the course where last year was such a tumultuous year in terms of having to sign extra players, right? Uh, yeah. I, I remember Pred Moore said when we were prepping for the draft, he's like, we had 31 people signed over the course of the year. We were almost an NFL team. You know, <laughs> yep. um, you know so they... Obviously, that had to be reduced, but obviously, you've got different, you know, a new coach coming in. So, you've got different styles and just, and then the natural turnover of like, you know, Bev Yanez retiring. Um, I know Sammy Joe Prudhomme and Morgan Prophet, I think they retired as well. But um, 
you know, what do you think about some of these names coming in to the rain? Amber Brooks, Sofia Huerta, Danny Weatherholt. What do you think they're going to be able to add to this club? Um, in the case of Amber Brooks, it's uh, her second stint with rain. So as you remember, I'm sure you remember, she, you know, she was playing for, for rain uh, back in the 2015 season. Right. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's like coming back uh, home again for her. And I remember her, I think in her uh, social media post after the trade went official of how she was just looking forward to being back and playing alongside uh, Jeff Sishlock, Lauren Barnes, Megan Rapino, and so many other faces that she remembers from her first thing here. And with Sophia Huerta, Julie Ashley, and Danny Weatherholt, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they can uh, bring for the team. It sounded like when they, uh, the way they announced Julia Ashley, like she'd been a player that they'd been wanting to get for quite a while. Uh-huh. Um, so it feels like it's, it's just one of the, the part of the whole process for Rain in terms of getting the squad younger. Because, uh, you know, the aforementioned Lauren Barnes, Jesper Stock, Megan Rapino, they're, 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 not, they're not getting any younger. So it's a matter of, uh, getting the last um, few bits of, uh, you know, playoff contending uh, soccer you can get from those veteran players, but also helping uh, the younger talents like Bethany Balser and Casey Murphy uh, continue their growth. And I think in the case of Balser getting um, that contract extension, which sounds like it's like four years, which I think is like the longest uh, contract extension to date in the in NWL history, it's like obviously they see a big upside in her and want to lock her down for as many years as possible. Well, and they finally, with the the compensation changes last fall, they're finally allowed to sign a much longer contract like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which is great to say, hey, we see so much potential. You know, we want this player, and I'm I'm really intrigued to see uh what taylor smith looks like right so she was acquired in last year's off season knowing that she would be out for the whole season right she had torn her acl playing in australia it was one of the things where anytime when people say oh my god they had so many injuries it's like no they signed taylor knowing that she was out for the season right but signing her Mm -hmm. as here's someone for for the future and so i think it's easy for us to forget when a player hasn't played for a year it's like wait that was a good player like wow to have mm-hmm. that player back you know what is that going to do and when people have asked me you know you know so who do you think will you know finish in the top 4 for the for this season for NWSL and i know it's still really early to to make those kind of predictions but when i look at the changes on on rosters most of these teams, I'm like, I don't know, right? Like, because the the turnover has been so high that it, it's like, God, I don't, I don't know what 2020 rain is going to look like compared to 2019 mm-hmm. rain, right? When the yeah. when the rosters have stayed the same, it's it's easier. But I'm like, I don't know. This could be amazing. It could not. You you just you just don't know, right? I think most rain fans at this point, whenever the season can start and we all have a the world has a collective sense of normalcy back i think the biggest thing uh most rain fans want for the 2020 squad is just to be healthy <laughs> yeah 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 and then we'll well then we can then worry about who's uh who's made the growth in terms of their uh, who's, playing who's starting I, and and who's getting what yeah. points yeah just everybody but healthy. i also don't want to uh forget to mention that 
in, in terms of also seeing who uh, on the younger side of the roster makes uh, growth in their game this season is um, players like Morgan Andrews, Darian Jenkins, and Celia Jimenez Delgado, who all had pretty successful uh, spells down in Australia in the W League. Yes, good point. Good point. Especially Darian Jenkins, you know, getting to mm-hmm. play in in that final along with the, a lot of other rain players. It seemed like, um, yeah, yeah. So it's it's like as always, we're just like, when does the season start? And we actually don't know, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. But Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to chat with me, get me caught up on on all things happening with the. OL Reign, we'll call it the newest club in NWSL, mm-hmm. as well as one of the oldest clubs in NWSL. And appreciate all the work you do for SounderAtHeart.com. Thank you, Jen. It's always fun to catch up with you. time to wrap it up with the back four as you all know everything and i mean everything is on hold for the time being so the us women's two april friendlies have been canceled and we now know that the summer olympics in tokyo have been postponed the team is supposed to have two domestic friendlies in june but right now we're still in wait and see mode thankfully the soccer powers that be have been sharing lots of match video on cable and online so be sure you're keeping an eye on the Twitter feeds for USWNT, Fox Soccer, ESPN, FIFA, all that. Um, lots, lots of great video to watch, and you don't have to pay anything. And meanwhile, the new U.S. home and away jerseys, the ones worn at the She Believes Cup, are available for pre-order now from Soccer for All, the store I used to run in Houston. The jerseys are due to be released sometime in April or May, and you can pre-order yours now at SoccerForAll.com. Just search for USA. If you want to add official customization, name and number of your choice, just email my buddy Sean at Sean at SoccerForAll.com. And that is Sean spelled S-H-A-W-N. And note that any USA jersey not purchased from USSoccer.com does not benefit USSoccer.com. So if you're concerned about you know where your money goes to and you prefer small business over u.s soccer then soccer for all is the way to go or any soccer store in in your vicinity that carries official gear and of course nwsl like everything else they're on hold for the time being so if you're needing an nwsl specific fix thankfully there are virtually seven seasons worth of games still available on nwslsoccer.com and youtube to keep you entertained the 2013 through 2016 seasons are on NWSL's YouTube channel, while the games for 2017 and beyond are accessible via the schedule page of NWSLsoccer.com. And one more way to keep yourself occupied is with the latest Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac. This 350-page comprehensive guide to the NWSL's first seven seasons features a complete player and coach registry, stats by season, all-time player and team records, color photos, playoff match reports, and much, much more. You cannot get all this info in one place anywhere else. Order now at keepernotes.com. It's available in both print and PDF. And right now, with this break in work, I am working on a Dash Almanac, and I might even do almanacs for each team in the future. Feel free to send any feedback 
about the almanacs to keeper at keepernotes.com. All right, that's it for this episode of The Mix Zone. I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, the official scarf supplier to MLS, USL, and US Soccer. And also props to IcarusFC.com. If you're tired of the same old uniforms and cookie cutter templates from Nike and Adidas, if you're looking for a completely custom kit for your team or club, Icarus FC can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. Just go to IcarusFC.com. And of course, many thanks to producer Sean and also the beautiful Game Network for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody's girl.